Miguel Flores requested three beef and cheese enchiladas, four quesadillas, Spanish rice, pico de gallo, a bowl of jalapeno peppers, a cheeseburger with mayo and ketchup, French fries, three Dr. Peppers with ice, and a banana split. Dennis Wayne Bagwell wanted a medium-rare steak with A1 steak sauce, fried chicken breasts and thighs, barbecue ribs, French fries, onion rings, bacon, scrambled eggs with onions, fried potatoes with onions, sliced tomatoes, salad with ranch dressing, two hamburgers, peach pie, milk, coffee, and iced tea with real sugar. Joan of Arc asked to be served the body of Christ. Yes, these are the last meals of condemned men and women. And in our text for today, we find Jesus at his last supper. In effect, Jesus was a condemned man. He hadn't yet formally been condemned, but the chief priests and scribes had been stalking him. They had declared their intention of turning him over to the Roman authorities for execution. And Judas was giving them the opportunity to do so even during the festival by promising to deliver him away from the adoring crowds. In reality, however, Jesus was no man's victim. He had condemned himself. He had come to earth to offer himself a sacrifice for sin, to atone for the sins of the world. He had planned from the very beginning to die in our place. And as he would tell Pilate during his trial, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Still, he knew he would be executed the following day. And it was his desire to eat the Passover meal with his disciples before his execution. Our text opens with him making preparation to do just that. We're in Luke chapter 22. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. On the first day of unleavened bread, homes were to be cleansed of leaven, of yeast. The bags of friendship bread starter in the fridge had to be thrown out. And the lamb to be served that night for Passover had to be prepared. Jesus and his disciples were camping out on the Mount of Olives, so they had no home to cleanse. But every Jew within 15 miles of the city was required to eat the Passover in Jerusalem. Besides, that's where every Jew 
would want to eat it. And it was customary for homeowners in the city to make extra rooms available to pilgrims so they could do so. When Jesus told Peter and John to go and prepare for the Passover, they were being sent to sacrifice a lamb, purchase supplies, and prepare a room for the meal. They knew they could find a spotless lamb for sale in the temple courtyard if the sellers had returned after being driven out by Jesus. They knew the procedure for having it slaughtered and its blood offered in the temple. They knew where they could purchase the bitter herbs, unleavened bread, and wine they would also need for the meal. But they had no idea where to set up for the meal. Thus the question, where do you want us to prepare it? Jesus' answer was a bit cryptic. He told them they would be met by a man carrying a pitcher of water when they entered the city. Apparently, he would be expecting them, and they would be able to identify him by the pitcher of water on his head. You know, men generally carried a skin of water. Women carried the heavier pitchers, balancing them on their heads. Without saying anything, they were to then follow this man into a house. Once inside, they were to ask the owner of the house to direct them to the guest room where the teacher was to eat the Passover with his disciples. Jesus assured them that he would show them a large, furnished upper room where they could prepare the meal. Now, there's no need to look for a miracle here. Jesus had been going into the city every morning to teach in the temple. And it's likely that he had made the necessary arrangements for the meal. It's even been suggested that the house in which the meal was held was owned by the parents of John Mark. In his gospel, Mark tells of a certain young man who followed Jesus and the disciples after they left the upper room wearing nothing but a linen sheet, which he embarrassingly left behind when it was grabbed by those who came to arrest Jesus. It's likely that Mark was that certain young man and that he had slipped out of bed to follow Jesus into the night. Whatever the case, it's obvious that Jesus had kept the location of the room where he would be eating the Passover a secret. And he did so, no doubt, to keep it from Judas. Judas was by then seeking a good opportunity to betray Jesus apart from the multitude. And what better opportunity than in the privacy of an upper room when every other Jew in Jerusalem would also be eating the Passover? Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed that night, but he didn't want Judas spoiling his last Passover. He really wanted to eat this meal with his disciples. Verses 14 through 18. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus knew this would be his last Passover. And after washing their feet, while reclining on pillows around the table, he expressed his heart's desire to eat it with his disciples before his suffering began. He then said something else that no doubt caused them to scratch their heads, as it does us. I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, he doesn't explain what he meant by that. But it's doubtful that he was speaking of a future Passover meal. He may have been talking about the next festal meal he would share with his disciples, the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. But whatever he meant by that, he did then begin the Passover celebration with the first cup of wine. And while details of the meal aren't given, we do know how the meal proceeded. The Passover had developed into quite a ritual. It would begin with a blessing and the first cup. After the first cup, the head of the household or someone he designated would relate how the death angel had passed over the homes of the Israelites in Egypt. Then, after the singing of Psalm 113 and 114, a second cup would be shared and the lamb eaten. It would have been roasted whole with bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of captivity. After a prayer of thanksgiving and a third cup, the cup of blessing, the meal would be concluded with the singing of Psalms 115 through 118 and a fourth cup. Of wine. Now, just in case you were wondering about the four cups of wine, let me remind you that a single cup was being shared by 13 men. And the wine used was diluted with three parts water. You know, those who insist that real wine should be used in communion today should note that Welch's grape juice is closer in alcohol content to what they used than would be Mogan David. What we have here was not a drunken feast, but a very beautiful, sacred celebration. One that looked back and looked forward. Looked back to the time God released his people from bondage through the blood of a sacrificial lamb and forward to the release from the bondage of sin through another sacrificial lamb. Verses 19 through 23. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. 
For indeed, the Son of Man is going, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Now, it's not clear at what point in the meal Jesus did this. But at some point, he took some bread. He blessed it and gave it to his disciples. Now, unleavened bread was eaten throughout the meal, so this was not at all unexpected. What was unexpected was what he said. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, obviously, the bread wasn't actually Jesus' body. It was his hand that was holding the bread. And he was still standing there. So why did he tell them, do this in remembrance of me? Apparently, he was instituting some kind of memorial procedure that was to be followed after his death, after the giving of his body. I'm sure the disciples didn't understand the full significance of what he was doing at that moment. And theologians have argued about it for 2,000 years without going into the debate about whether this is an ordinance, a religious ritual ordained by Christ, or a sacrament, a means of grace, and questions about transubstantiation, that the bread and wine are literally and mystically transformed into the body and blood of Christ when consecrated and administered by a priest, consubstantiation, that the body is mystically present alongside of the bread and wine when received after being consecrated and administered by the clergy, and symbolism, that the elements are simply reminders of his body and blood. And what he did for us on the cross, all agree that Jesus instructed us to do this in remembrance of me. He was about to offer himself as the sacrificial lamb that would actually take away the sin of the world, fulfilling the promise that God would pass over those protected by the blood of the Lamb. And he wanted it remembered. He then took another cup, probably the cup of blessing, and gave it special significance. He said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He was drawing the old covenant, a covenant based on obedience to the law, to a close, and replacing it with a new covenant, a covenant of grace based on the pouring out of his blood. In effect, he had transformed the Passover into the Lord's Supper something we celebrate together every Lord's Day. 
The account ends with an encouraging yet very disturbing note. The hand of the one betraying him was with him on the table. Now, John's gospel gives the impression that Judas left the meal before Jesus actually instituted the Lord's Supper. But Luke indicates he's still there. Whether he was there for all of it or not, Jesus did allow him to be present with him at the table. He knew what Judas was doing, but he did not bar him from being there. And I find that encouraging. Jesus didn't stand guard at his table. And neither should we. Everyone is welcome. But that does not mean that by simply being there, all sins are absolved. What was about to happen to Jesus had been long before determined. But Judas would still be held accountable for the sin of betraying the Son of Man. Likewise, Paul warns us about partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In 1 Corinthians 11, 22-29, he writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. No one is worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's a privilege we have been given through the undeserved grace of God. We are warned, however, that we must partake in a worthy manner. We are to approach it with the reverence due the body of Christ. And we are to examine ourselves as we come to his table. We are to make certain that our motives in coming are proper and that we have every intention of living in a way that honors his presence in our life during the upcoming week. When Judas came to the table, it was a sham. He came with betrayal in his heart. 
Obviously, we must not come to the table with plans to betray our Lord when we leave it. Let us come with gratitude for what Christ has done for us and with a commitment to live holy lives in the grace that has been made available to us under the new covenant. If things are right in your heart, all things are ready. Come to the feast. Let's stand. Thank you.